0: Uh, today we continue our series. We've been working uh, through the last uh, several Sundays through the book of, of First Thessalonians uh, with uh, uh, James Grant. James uh, has uh, become a familiar face during this transition, and we're uh, grateful for you being with us and look forward to hearing God's word from you today. Thanks, James. Thank you. It is a delight to be with you. If you have your Bibles, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're in the fourth chapter, and we are taking, in order to move through the book fairly smoothly, we're taking larger sections. So we're in chapter 4, and we'll be covering verses 1 through 12. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, And to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives you His holy, who gives His holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we would ask at this time that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that your spirit would bring repentance to us, a change of mind and heart, a transformation of our awareness of you, and increase the depth of love we have for you and for others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How does the gospel change the way you live? As we've looked through Thessalonians, one of the significant aspects I've wanted to highlight is not only what Paul says in the text of his story of planning this church, but what kind of perspective, what kind of mindset does he have When he goes in to encouraging a church. So the question, how does the gospel change the way you live, is a very relevant and important question for all Christians. Because sometimes we disconnect the gospel from our daily lives. Sometimes we disconnect the gospel from our obedience. I remember in the church that I grew up in, the gospel was always highlighted as the, the message that gets preached in your response. So the gospel was almost exclusively talked about in terms of conversion. That it was about someone coming to faith in Christ. So I grew up thinking, well, you believe the gospel when you become a Christian and then you move on. And you move on to all the other things you're supposed to do. And sometime in college, it came crashing down on me, and I'll never forget it, that the gospel is actually for Christians too, that it's not just for non-Christians, but that the gospel, the good news of Christ, is for you if you're a believer. It is one of the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith that you should not ignore that you should spend most of your life deepening is an understanding of how the gospel applies to you in your life. That's what the Tim Keller quote is about this Sunday on page three of your bulletin. Keller did this in a book where he's talking about church planting, and I love how he goes back and forth between religion and the gospel because the gospel is so unique, the message of Christianity is so unique, that all other religions say one thing and the gospel says something else. And, and this is what I want to highlight before we jump into some of the commands in Thessalonians 4. Keller says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That's the fundamental truth of Christianity. That's different from everything else. Everything else is, I have to do these things so I'm accepted. It's life. If you don't do your job, you're going to get fired, more than likely. Unless you have an inside track with the boss. (laughs) Unless you're a relative or something. If you don't do the things you're supposed to do, that's a problem. In the gospel, you're called to live because you've already been accepted. That's a complete transformation of the way you're supposed to think. Now here's the problem. Most of us live our daily life as Christians thinking if I just do enough stuff, God's going to like me. It's going to be okay. And then when I don't do those things, then I feel like he doesn't like me. You know what happened? It's your feelings that change there. It's not God's perspective. So religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says I'm accepted Therefore, I obey. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel, motivation is based on grateful joy. The gospel doesn't motivate with fear. Yes, there are consequences to disobedience, but that doesn't change your standing, your acceptance. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. Some of you read that and thought, oh, I think I live that way sometimes. The gospel says, I obey to get God to delight in and resemble him, to reflect him in life. Religion says, when the circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself, since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus. And that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. That's a completely different way of viewing the world. The gospel is a completely different way of viewing the the world, of viewing God and other people. And in order to live properly, you have to start with the gospel. You never move beyond the gospel. It's what Paul said in Galatians that we referenced last week. How is it that you start out so well and now you think you've moved beyond the spirit because you're trying to obey and do the things of your own power, Paul says. We're called to live, Galatians 2:14 said, in line with the gospel. So as we come into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look at some of these commands and the way Paul structures this, our starting point has to be that. Our starting point has to be that understanding. Another way to put this, and I'd ask you if you uh, 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 hear these words and you're like, oh, this is a grammar lesson. Please don't do this. In in theological studies, it's called the indicative and imperative of Pauline uh, ethics or Paul's view of obedience. Now, I know... I use two words that you're not supposed to use when you're up here preaching because people check out if they hated grammar in school. Just bear with me for a moment. The indicative is a Greek term describing something that has already happened, something that's accomplished. And the imperative is a term that means a command. This is so important. It is, it is the essence of the gospel. And, and I point this out because in 1 Thessalonians 4... Paul bookends this section. The section we're looking at is verses 1 through 12. He bookends it with the word walk. You'll see in verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. As I told you how to walk, then drop down to verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. This is one of the first letters Paul wrote. And he uses this metaphor, walk, to describe the way you're supposed to live. That you're called to walk properly. Now, if you if you bear with me for just a moment and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians is one of his last letters, later, much later. And he uses the same expression to walk. It occurs eight times in the letter of Ephesians. And I want you to notice, and this relates to the indicative imperative that I mentioned a moment ago, in Ephesians one eighteen, it is his opening prayer for the book. And I believe these two verses I'm going to show you in Ephesians are two critical verses for this whole book. He prays that not only that they may have this knowledge, but having the eyes, this is chapter one, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he says, I pray that your eyes are opened, that your heart is enlightened, and you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then when he gets to chapter four, verse one, He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Now here's the connection. At the very beginning of the book, he prays that they might have an understanding of this calling, a knowledge of this calling, of who they are in Christ, of who you are. And then when he goes to chapter four and he's ready to talk about some very practical things like we're about to look at in Thessalonians, he says, now I'm asking you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which you've been called. In other words, God has done something in your life by calling you. And he calls you to walk in a way that reflects it. He calls you to walk in a way that reflects that identity. The calling is the indicative. He's he's done something for you. He's opened your eyes. He's connected you to Christ. He's called you. Then the imperative is now walk in a manner that's worthy. This is through the whole Bible. If we take the Ten Commandments as an example, and I ask you to recite the Ten Commandments, you might start with the first commandment. But that's not the beginning of the Ten Commandments. The beginning of the Ten Commandments is a prologue that says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. The very beginning of the Ten Imperatives, the Ten Commandments, that structured all of the Old Testament in terms of obedience, the very beginning is an indicative, it's a statement of fact that God brought them out of bondage and out of slavery. And now you need to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. If you don't get the order right, your life will constantly be a life of frustration because you don't think you're going to live up to God. If you don't get this order right in the way you view God, your obedience will constantly be an attempt to get God to accept you. And all your life, you'll be striving to see if you can make God happy. And you won't say it. Nobody wants to say that in a Reformed church. But you feel it whenever you fail. Because the gospel doesn't have that kind of priority. And so, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, and we look at some of these commands, the starting point when Paul uses this language of walking, that you're called to walk in this manner is that God has done something. He has called you. He has brought you into his kingdom. He has opened your eyes. He has accepted you in Christ. I mean, that's, that's what we prayed, right, at the confession, time of confession in the bulletin. We're conf- we we quoted from Romans 7. We don't understand our own actions. What are we doing? That passage in Romans 7 that talks about how I I keep doing the thing I don't want to do, Romans 7 then moves to Romans 8 where Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. In the midst of Romans 7 where you do something and you don't know why you just did it and you pray and say God please forgive me I can't believe I did this again. The very next chapter says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ you will not obey properly unless you believe right now that there's no condemnation and live out of that truth we love God because he first loved us so in first Thessalonians 4 as we look at this we're going to see uh, three points of what this walk looks like, and as we do, we're going to highlight how this this introduction that we use from Tim Keller's quote and connecting it to Ephesians ties in, because you're called to live in a manner worthy of what God has done. We're going to look how this walk that Paul describes has to be a walk of perseverance. You have to continue to press on. This walk that Paul describes has to be a walk of sanctification, holiness. And then this walk that Paul describes has to be a walk of love. Three points. First of all, walk of perseverance. Perseverance means that you're going to keep pressing on. And that's why understanding that the gospel is for you as a Christian is so important. Because you can keep pressing on when you know that God has already accepted you. Notice verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing now, that you do so more and more. Paul's little expression there, that you do so more and more, is describing that life of perseverance. Perseverance that you don't get to a point in the Christian faith where you arrive this side of heaven. You are constantly growing. There will never be a point in your life where you stop and you arrive. Your faith and your repentance and your life will constantly be growing, or it should. In fact, Paul doesn't just say more and more right there in verse one. If you drop down to verse 10, He says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In other words, that's in the love context. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In other words, you're loving each other. Great. But keep doing it. And keep striving so that you can bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Do not throw in the towel. There will be times in the course of your life as a Christian where you feel like you want to throw in the towel. And the most painful situations will come from the church. A relationship that you had, a friendship that you had, a community that you had, a bond that you had goes wrong. And it happens at work and it happens at school and it happens with other relationships, but you came into the church thinking, we can get this right and this won't happen here. And then it does. And you're like, what just went wrong? I thought this was the gospel. I thought this was God's work. And you have to reevaluate your life and say, you know, I don't know why these things happen. (laughs) Why is it that relationships get broken and they don't get mended the way we would want them to? But you don't give up when that happens. And you don't just blame the church and feel like I'm done with the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They can't get along with each other. I don't know where you're going to go that you're going to get along with anybody. I mean, it happens everywhere. So in the life of faith, in the walk of faith, that notion of perseverance is fundamental. I have no idea for, for you, where you where you've come from in terms of your spiritual journey, exactly what you've been through. You could tell me, and you could tell me that story. And I have no idea, and neither do you, where you're going. But in that journey, it requires commitment and perseverance. My wife shared with me a little uh, note uh, yesterday. um, One of her favorite authors put, I think it was on Facebook or one of the social media outlets, this is what she wished she'd told her 20-year-old self. And one of the components of it was to value the things that are small, that happen. And to be able to forgive and to move on because that's one of the requirements of faith. So the walk of perseverance is fundamental. Do what you're doing, but do so more and more. Number two, the walk of sanctification. I take this from verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification, your growth, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word sanctification is a much broader word. It's the word for holiness. You often hear people describe using three terms to describe the Christian life and to describe the salvation process being justification, sanctification, and glorification. Those three terms describing the whole process of the Christian faith uh, we often use sanctification for that process of growing in holiness, of growing in Christlikeness. And Paul says, "This is the will of God that you be sanctified, that you be you continue this process of holiness." Now, under the title, under the broad category of sanctification, there's a lot of commands. One of those commands could be to love one another, which we're going to look at as the third point. It just so happens that the command Paul gives right here for holiness is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, one of the reasons he does this, I think in this particular book, is because of the context of the religious communities in this culture in Thessalonica. In Paul's day, marriages in the Greek and Roman world were set up by family arrangements, Young men in their 20s and young ladies in their teens had just barely met when they were married. And so marriage was simply a legal arrangement for the exchanging of money and goods and the ability to have children. What this did before Christianity came along is it created an environment in the Greco-Roman world where most people didn't expect husbands to be committed to their marriages or wives to be committed to their marriages. That was the cultural context in which Christianity came out of. The sexual misconduct and adultery was widespread. Prostitution was a business just like any other source of income. And and slavery was a huge problem there. And that resulted in more issues like this. There is even, even a man uh, named Domestius who explained the situation this way. This comes from this time period. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being and wives to bear us legitimate children. That's the cultural context in which the gospel comes to bear. Now, we may be surprised that it's stated in such a matter-of-fact way, but people in that culture saw this behavior as normal. Now, the, the struggles we face in our own day with sexual immorality are not as widespread, it seems, as that culture, and yet, if you're a little older and can back up and look at the changes that have taken place in our culture in the past 20 years, it's shocking how far it's come. And so Paul uses this context to talk about this issue of sexual immorality. Now, he's not primarily addressing the culture. Even though the culture has this problem, Paul's concern is always with the gospel community. Paul's not, in this passage, addressing the evil of the culture. The command for sanctification and holiness and to abstain from sexual immorality is for believers. Now, the reason I say this is because often you'll hear a message, a sermon, that will highlight a command like this, but it's all about how bad everything is in the culture. Paul is much more concerned about how you're behaving as Christians. When he says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world if that were the case. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if they are guilty of this. It's Paul's way of trying to highlight the gospel community and the responsibilities we have for each other. Paul's concern is the church. He's not addressing how the world behaves. He's addressing how we behave. And this issue of sexual immorality comes to bear because it is a reflection of our love, which is going to be the next point. Notice how he unpacks this, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's the context I just described. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In other words, because you're a gospel community and you're drawing close to one another and developing these deep bonds of relationship and friendship, you don't cross that line of sexual immorality. You bear with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul says, 4, verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, notice how Paul does this in this command for sexual immorality. If you disregard his command, you're not disregarding just a man's command. It's a command from God. And he ends this section by saying, God gave you his Holy Spirit. So here's the practical dynamic of this. We can read a passage like this and feel very guilty because of our disobedience, our choices. (laughs) And yet Paul, when he gives us these commands, does not try to shame us. He tries to say, here's the command. This is where you're supposed to be. You're not quite there yet, but God's given you His Spirit so that you can keep going. Because that's often the struggle that we face as Christians. When we get into whatever kind of command that Paul lays down for holiness sexual morality, lying, cheating, stealing, you list the don'ts. The difficulty is we disobey. But when we disobey, if we come to Christ in faith and repentance, Paul never casts us off. Paul is constantly saying, this is not who you are. You are an accepted son and daughter of Christ. Now, live like it. He does not say, I think you're probably not a Christian because you made a mistake. He treats you as if you're accepted in Christ, as you're striving to grow more and more. And so even in a command like this, you have to remind yourself of the first point, perseverance, that you are going to do this more and more and grow. Third point, uh, this walk is not only a walk that requires perseverance and a walk, that involves sanctification, which means ongoing holiness, but it is a walk of love. Verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, Paul provides us several commands here about love. Now, love is one of these important themes through the whole book. If you recall, the book began in chapter 1, verse 3, by highlighting your work of faith, your labor of love. And your steadfastness of hope. I think the book unfolds that way. In other words, the work of faith becomes uh, the rest of chapter one and chapter two. As they've come to faith and they embrace Christ, and, and that work of faith continues to grow, their labor of love is the love for one another as they're trying to continue with the establishment of this church, and then as you get into chapter 3 and chapter 4, how that love looks. How does that love look in the context of a community? And so Paul says, here's what it looks like. And then next week, that steadfastness of hope is going to come to bear as we talk about the future and the coming of Jesus. So the walk... Of love, There are three commands that Paul gives here. Paul gets very practical about what brotherly love should look like. He told us to love one another, and he told us to live well with one another, and now he tells us what this actually looks like. Three commands that we are called to obey. First, Paul commands us to live a quiet life. Verse 11. Verses uh, 9 and 10 are the description of their own love and how they should do it more and more. Then, verse 11 starts the commands. Number one, to aspire to live quietly. It's a fascinating command related to love because sometimes um, we take on the notion of the gospel and and what we know, and, and sometimes we become very loud. As Christians. But Paul actually wants us to live a much more reflective life, a contemplative life, shall we say. Number two, to mind your own affairs, to mind your own business, as the NIV puts it. The second command that Paul gives seems to be connected to the first one. We might say they are two sides of the same coin. Paul seems to clarify this command uh, later on. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 when he says, we urge you brothers to admonish the idle. So live quietly and mind your own affairs. There seem to be people in the church who are always poking into other people's business. Imagine that. That must have been a first century problem. In chapter five, he calls them idle But the better translation of these people are people who are walking disorderly. He calls them not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so Paul says, do your own work. Work quietly and earn your own living in chapter 5. Now, it seems to be that there are several problems taking place at one time in, in this church. There's a problem with people that according to Paul, are not working. And since they don't work, they can't earn a living. and This is putting a strain in the life of the church. But their lack of work doesn't mean they're just sitting at home. Instead, Paul describes them as busybodies. And they're constantly into the life of other people. Paul is talking about a kind of person that does not do his or her own work, but instead just hangs out while you're trying to do your own work. That seems to be what a busybody is. The third command that he has is to work with your own hands. Now, by now, you should see a pattern to these three commands. Paul's urging them to live a quiet life, which means they should mind their own business and they should work with their own hands. I think these commands are probably connected to the bigger problem in the church. We know from Acts 17 that there were some wealthy people in the church and there were also some of a lower status in society. And so some have speculated that they could have been using uh, the more wealthy. Whatever is the case, whatever the specific situation is, Paul's solution is the same. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we instructed you." Now let me press this home just a little bit with a particular application, because I don't know you, and we all have different personalities and different perspectives on life. We're all very different. So let's apply this aspect of brotherly love like this. If you're the kind of person who tends to be nosy, and you want to know everything that's going on, if you're the kind of person that's always pushing into other people's business, Paul says, live quietly. On the other hand, if you're the kind of person who's very comfortable with your little world, if you do not want to bother others or you bother people, this passage is probably pushing you toward loving people more than you do. That's always the difficulty of applying a message like this. Because you're all coming from different perspectives. And some people are much more cautious about engaging the life of the church. And in those cases, Paul would say, no, step out in love. But then there are some who are wanting to be on every committee and in every situation and asking every kind of question. And Paul's like, why don't you pull your foot off the gas pedal a little bit? Paul's context here depends upon what's exactly happening. Isn't that the way love works? I mean, I can't get up here and give you one simple explanation of love because it depends on what you're facing. It depends on the context that you're facing, and it depends on what you have to do and decide at that point. And so Paul is being a very careful and wise pastor by articulating love in these three steps so that they can apply it to their own particular situation. Now, as we wrap this up, what's the result? Paul gives us these commands. He's instructed us on how to, how to walk, and now he ends it by saying in verse 12, this all supposed to happen, being persevering, doing so more and more, uh, your sanctification, your holiness, your love, all this is supposed to happen so you may walk properly before outsiders. Such an important reminder. Our Lord Jesus, while he was ministering on this earth, explain to us how the world will know that we are Christians. In John 13, 35, when he said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I would personally find it easier if he said, if you had the right doctrine. i say, okay, I can check that box off. But he says, if you have love for one another. And that love... Sometimes has to be tough in a context where things aren't going quite right, and sometimes it has to take it easy, because love is a very complex thing. But as you love, you witness to Christ. You witness about his love. And this kind of love was a powerful testimony in the first century for the life of the church. This kind of love continued on into the early church in the third century, Tertullian, Whose early church father, once reported that the Romans would say about the Christians, see how much they love each other. It was a witness. The Christians were known in the early stages of the church as people who went up to the hills, and that was a description of what would happen when a child was born to a family and they did not want the child. You would take that baby out to the hills outside the city and let that baby die there of exposure. And the Christians became known as the people who went to the hills every day to check to see if there was a baby there and brought that child back and raised the child. The depth of their love was known all over the empire. And it's one of the things that turned that world upside down. Just a martyr, another early church father, explained Christian love this way. We who used to value the acquiring of wealth and and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with those who have need. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or another country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. It was that kind of love that turned the world upside down in the Roman Empire. Even as they were dying in the midst of the persecution, and being placed in the middle of the Colosseum with the lions coming out on them, they were praying for the people who were persecuting them. That kind of love only comes from the gospel. The power and, and motivation to obey that way and to love that way only comes from an understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and you're fully accepted and can love those who need to be loved. And you can pray as he prayed and as Paul prays at the end of his life, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Because we sometimes don't know what we're doing. And God forgives us too. May we have that kind of love as we seek to minister to other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For instructing us, sometimes it is difficult to move verse by verse through Paul's letters and he comes upon some passages and we come upon some passages where he instructs us and is very firm with us about our obedience and our holiness and our conduct. And yet, as we face those passages, you are a loving heavenly father who has accepted us in Christ and we have nothing to fear as we strive to love and to obey more and more. And we would pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would do his work to strengthen our hearts and our resolve to love well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.